we're going to have an extraordinary show. We're going to hear from a Ukrainian-American journalist. You're going to hear about Ukraine like you don't hear it from the foxhole or MSDNC or anywhere else. It's going to be the straight stuff reporting from Ukraine and uh, reports from Ukraine and Russia from someone who really knows what they're talking about. We will, in the bottom of the hour, have uh, go to a second conflict zone, the state of Georgia, where we'll speak with an American who has who's was blocked from voting in the Georgia runoffs. You want to talk about that polite word vote suppression? You know what? Hey, listen, when someone steals your car, your car, you don't say my car has been suppressed. So we're going to get down to the reality of what vote suppression, that is vote theft means. Uh, before I bring on our next guest, Larissa Alexandrovna, I want to just follow up on two of the of the points. This is Greg Pallast sitting in for Kerry Harrison. And uh, from my fact injections from prior weeks, one was we brought up the idea of um, getting our oil instead of from Vlad Putin, uh, getting our oil from Venezuela. The United States has crushed the Venezuelan oil industry through um, a embargo and a sabotage. They are now producing almost no oil, 200,000 barrels a day. When they could produce 3.2 million barrels a day, that would break Putin's heart if the U.S. ended the Trump-created embargo. And I, the good news is that the Biden administration seems to have heard us uh, uh, and uh, has sent a delegation down to meet with the Venezuelan government. They've, inv- they've invaded no one. They have threatened no one. And yet we're not – instead, we're taking Putin's oil and gas instead of Venezuela's. So it looks like that may change for us. That's the good news. The second is that, uh, again, this is Greg Pallast. Um, if you go to buzzflash.com or gregpallast.com, you'll see my new story today on Vlad Putin. Not many people know that Vlad Putin became – you know, he didn't just become uh, president of Russia. He didn't fall out of the sky and land on an abalone shell. He was chosen by oligarchs, in particular one named Igor Berezovsky, who is literally looking for an imitation of the dictator Pinochet of Chile. So they literally, he literally won a Pinochet act-alike contest, and he was chosen as uh, by the billionaires who were looting Russia as Putin's successor because they were worried at the time that the Communist Party, all the polls show, was going to get reelected and back in office. So they had to fix the election, but they're only going to fix it for Yeltsin if he then picked a Pinochet as his prime minister and successor. And that's when they found this uh, judo champ who was a minor official, um, deputy mayor of of St. Petersburg, a guy named Vlad Putin. And so they got themselves their Pinochet. They even went so far as to have the uh, Larry King, the big uh, Russian uh, TV star, go and actually speak with Pinochet while he was under arrest for murder to give his advice to the Russians on who they want as their next president. And that's how they ended up with Putin. Read that story at buzzflash.com or gregpalace.com. But now I want to introduce someone who actually really knows something about the subject, Larissa Alexandrovna. Larissa, are you with us? I am. Can you hear me? I can hear you wonderfully, and so can all of Los Angeles and, and the Southern California area. This is uh, Greg Palast on Reality Check, KPFK Los Angeles, 90.7 FM on your dial, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, and 99.5 FM in Ridge. 
Ridgecrest China Lake. I don't even know where that is, but hello, Ridgecrest. So you're listening to Larissa Alexandrovna, who is a terrific investigative reporter and commentator. I won't give you her past credentials because she's speaking independently for herself and to tell her own story and what she knows what's going on. Now, Larissa, you were born in Ukraine. You got I out. Was. When did that happen? Tell us I was about. Born in Odessa, Ukraine, mm-hmm. during the Soviet occupation, and uh, my family and I escaped uh, as refugees and spent time in various refugee uh, locations uh, in Austria and Italy, and were finally given asylum in the United States. And this was '79. Uh, Do you still have family uh, in Ukraine? Uh, not immediate family. All of my immediate family is buried there, but. We have uh, extended family and friends still there, yes. Mm-hmm. In in Odessa, that area? And, and in various parts of Ukraine, but yes. And primarily also in, in Russia. You have and in family Russia, in Russia. Ac- yes. And, and in I Russia, wanna, we actually have immediate family. I want to talk about that without endangering anyone, so I'll, I understand that, that you've already told me that there's some limits, and we want to even talk about that issue of the limits. So what is happening What's the information you're getting? First, instead of Ukraine, what's happening in Russia oh, that, it's, that we need to know about? That We're not getting very much information about actually what's going on in Russia. There's a complete uh, totalitarian police state now where uh, people are randomly being uh, stopped on the streets and their phones inspected to make sure they don't have contraband information or banned. or What would be uh, banned? Anything that calls you, what's happening in Ukraine a war. Anything that uh, says there's casualties, civilian casualties, anything that would in any way suggest that the official narrative of a special operation isn't what it is being sold as. Now, um, mm-hmm. So uh, people are getting uh, security checks, random inspections of their homes. Um, there's a presence of uh, riot police, huge numbers in the streets, as well as uh, uh, secret services and things like that. And it's gotten to the point where when I'm communicating with certain people there, um, we have to talk in code. Mm, um, we cannot speak. I mean, it's it's very strange to me because only a couple of weeks ago, we were able to have normal conversations. And then you could see it sort of uh, transform over just even days. It went from speaking kind of more carefully and then encode using weather. <laughs> Is it hot in the South? Why? Yes, it's very oh, hot in the yeah, South. Yeah, very hot. Um, and then it went to no communications. Mm. So um, it's it's very scary what's going on there. People are being arrested um, even just for asking what's happening in Ukraine. I mean, it's uh, uh, it's very scary. So there's actually two groups of people suffering Mm-hmm. And I think it's important that the West understands the Russian people are not fighting the Ukrainian people. Explain There's that. Two, because we are, we're not one people, we're different people, but we're very similar. And we have over a period of many years, and especially through our forced existence under the Soviet regime, we've become sort of one in our suffering and we've intermarried. And so everyone's got Ukrainian family who is Russian. I mean, at least a a good portion of people Mm -hmm. and same for Ukrainian people. And so nobody wants this. 
Well, someone um, wants this. I mean, certainly Vlad Putin is. Is there support in Russia? I mean, is is his propaganda there is some support? Wor- yes, yeah, working. But that's support. There is some support, of course, because remember, you've got a closed loop of information, mm-hmm. um, especially the further you go out from the major cities where access to uh, alternative information is harder to get. So there is support. You know, there are people who are absolutely convinced that they are fighting an enemy that is attacking them and all of this. But there are enough people who know that's not what's happening. And uh, they're getting they're talking to people in the West like I am talking to people there who are telling them what's happening. So they know that what they're hearing isn't accurate. So there is a growing understanding and there are attempts to take to the street. Initially it started as very large groups. Yeah. 13, uh, the last count, I don't know if you have a newer count, but about four days ago, 13,000 people have been arrested for protesting. And, yeah. and I even saw that there was one woman who worked for Russian television who got behind, who snuck into the studio, yeah. got in front of the cameras uh, where the, um, the anchor couldn't see her and said, uh-huh. stop the war in English and then had Russian anti-war slogans. And what do you think's happened to her? Oh, I know. Oh, so I've, uh, her name is Mar- uh, Marina Avsina. Uh, oh, I can't say her last name. Avsina Kova. And you she speak was, Russian. <laughs> okay. I know, but but right, it's weird. Yeah. It's I speak Russian, but it's her mouth. Her name is a mouthful. Mm-hmm. Um, she she's a my understanding it was a producer there, and when she came, she had a sign that said mm-hmm. "No War." They're lying to you. This is Russian propaganda. And uh, she immediately security services showed up. She was detained. I saw pictures of the outside that certain journalists were able to smuggle out of the studio where all you see all these police units because she's, you know, this is like a serious crime. Right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, they passed a law very hastily that if you say the word war (laughs) with regard to Ukraine, you can get a 15 year prison sentence. So in Russia. Yeah. Yes. In Russia. So she was detained. And then uh, for a period of, I don't know. 15, 16 hours, nobody could find her, her lawyer, her family, no one. And it turns out she was being interrogated all that time. She's since been to court, and that's the last uh, update I had. I'm not sure what's happened since then. Yeah, that's one of of many. Um, I know you're concerned. And what have you been hearing from the Ukraine or Ukraine, uh, which I know that you had posted on your site, and we're speaking with uh, Larissa Alexandrovna. Yeah. And on your um, own, uh, is it, I, maybe it's a Facebook page, I don't or Instagram, wherever it was, you posted yeah. photos of people in Odessa, which is where you're from, right. lining up literally hundreds and hundreds of Molotov cocktails. Right. So what is going on there? What's the spirit there? Well, I mean, the spirit's the same as it is anywhere else, but they haven't been bombarded yet. They're sort of, it's going to be very hard to take Odessa. Because there's underground catacombs that are ginormous that were used in guerrilla warfare against the Nazis and the Soviets. So this is this is a city that's well equipped for defending itself. So it hasn't been bombarded as as badly as Kharkiv or Kiev yet. But what I'm hearing is that there, well, there's two things going on. There's mm-hmm. sort of this sense of like hope that's coming from the artsy side of it, where there's musicians are staying behind because a lot of civilians are being evacuated or trying to evacuate, but a lot of people don't want to leave. So some of those people are actually musicians, actors, uh, and they're staging 
like mini concerts just in the middle of the street. And, and then the second part are the people who are creating, uh, uh, wrapping the statues and trying to preserve the cultural, uh, uh, landmarks and others who are preparing Molotov cocktails and yet others who are piling up sandbags at the port and, and baking bread and things like that. I mean, everybody's, it's funny because we were talking to uh, someone we know in Odessa and they were telling us that even the little kids are involved. They're running around removing all the street signs <laughs> so that when the soldiers arrive, they won't know where they are. Well, one of the questions I have, of course, unless they have Siri helping them, I don't know. But the, um, in all honesty, I mean, I see this great spirit, but it's Molotov cocktails. This isn't 1956 with Hungary against Soviet tanks. Uh, right. How does this end? I mean, and it didn't end well for Hungary, let's be honest. I mean, uh, the, the conquest uh, succeeded. What right. do you think will happen? And, and by the way, let me just mention one thing because I know some people have asked about our correspondent, Nick Parapolitsa, who is in Kharkiv and uh, um, uh, sending us messages when he can. Uh, Kharkiv uh, is under mass bombardment. Uh, yeah. Wall Street Journal reported the day before yesterday that so far in um, in our correspondent city um, – 400 apartment buildings have been uh, knocked down by shelling. Uh, Nick just sent me a note uh, saying that his friend just lost his home to the bombardment. Yeah. He's in the basement of his building, which is so far standing up. And uh, so we'll continue to get those reports from Nick. Will there be, like in Afghanistan, if, this, if the Russian tanks roll all the way across, do you see a kind of, of uh, endless guerrilla war no it's going to be decisively bloody <laughs> um mm. like you said we can't fight with molotov cocktails so if if i guess if we define winning is if winning is killing everybody and destroy, <clears throat> destroying the land mm. then yes probably putin will win well let me but if we're de if we're defining winning differently if we're defining winning as proving that a nation can stand against uh, this kind of aggression on its own two feet, that everyone was willing to come together to fight for liberty and really do something historic, then I think we've already won. So, Well, it may be but, a moral victory, but it look, it's looking yeah. pretty bloody. I wanted to ask you why. It will be bloody. Uh, yeah. Why now? Now, one, you know, why, why is Putin <laughs> rolled tank? I mean, I know that you're not his psychologist or, you know, uh, but – and it's hard to read into this guy. But you've been, you know, you speak Russian. You were listening to his speeches from the cabinet. One of the issues that's been brought up, and I'd like you to respond to it, is a lot of people on the left and on the right in in America, you know, from our mm -hmm. from our terrible experiences from Vietnam, et cetera, say, oh, well, the U.S. provoked and the West provoked Russia by Ukraine's – by the expansion of NATO and, and Ukraine's applying for NATO membership, that that was a provocation – causes Belli to invade. What do you say to that? I, well, I mean, that's uh, there. It's true that this was going on. I mean, I've been against the uh, NATO since uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. I didn't think it needed to exist or if there needed to be a treaty. There had to be a new one because this one was so provocative. So is that you know? good reason to invade Ukraine? At, well, at this no, time? I didn't say that. I'm saying well, that's what I'm asking, <laughs> asking about. Right. Right. So, well, 
here's the problem I'm finding is that there's this kind of uh, tribal official version that each political group in America has. And those are the official narratives. And the thing is, there's truth to both sides of this. Yes, absolutely. American provocation was is and has been one of the key driving factors in this. Absolutely. No question. But, you know, when you hear him talk and yes, he's concerned about you mean Putin. Yes, I apologize. Yes, Putin. For me, when I just listening to him, when he was having his cabinet meeting and what the what the various people were saying and what he was saying, I immediately set up and I said, oh, my God, he's going to he's going to uh, like invade uh, Ukraine. Yeah, I guess that's wrong. Right. And I know lots of people got it wrong. And but they were there was no reason for them to think otherwise, because explain what he th- said that that signaled to you that he was going to invade. And why now? The sort of sense that we are one people, we've never meant to be. He's always said this, but it was, there was a sense of passion and anger that I hadn't heard. And I and when he says we're the, one people. He's saying Ukraine is not a separate nation. Correct. We were never meant to be a separate nation. We were always one people. And it was humiliating and destructive for both countries and that we love each other and we want to be together. You know, we want to be married again. <laughs> And you want to be married, thought, and if we don't, we're going to roll the tanks over you. Right, right. Now, and the thing is, mm-hmm. he makes very good arguments about NATO, absolutely. And I've been against NATO, and and not just the uh, NATO itself, but the various provocations by uh, well, America. No, let me just throw out a counterpoint. Uh, right. Ukraine apply. Ukraine is not in NATO. No. And Ukraine applied 14 years ago. Correct. And its uh, application was pretty much laughed out of uh, out of NATO as uh, because they even by their charter they can't have a member who's in conflict with a bordering nation. So there was mm-hmm. no chance. There was never any indication that Ukraine would be allowed to join NATO. Um, so why is Putin suddenly, after 14 years after Ukraine's application, and let's not forget that Russia itself has guaranteed. You know, when you talk about is Ukraine a threat in what is it 94? Ukraine literally shipped all of its nuclear warheads to Russia. That's In hardly a sign. For not not shoot. They didn't shoot them at Russia. They sent them to Russia, all right. of their warheads, and uh, in return for Russia, the United States, uh, and the UK, guaranteeing the freedom of Ukraine. So why why do you think that well, that uh, Putin suddenly thinks that there's a threat? I don't think he thinks there's a sudden threat. It's like. So why I think now? there's a couple of factors here. And again, I, as you said, I'm not a psychologist. There's the fact that we've been putting missiles in various Eastern European countries. We've been. But why now? Why? Why invade been, now? Uh, um, you know, uh, regime sort of flirting with regime change and engaging in regime change in in Eastern Europe. Why particularly this moment? I I can't tell you. I, I know that everyone I know, Russians and Ukrainians alike. We thought I was being hysterical when I said, my God, he's invading. And, uh, you know, but the thing is, I'm telling you what I heard in his voice. And I'm like, OK, this is it. He's going in. He's going straight for um, Kiev and Odessa. And, you know, everyone I knew was saying, oh, you're being in, you're being hysterical. He might he might go as far as Donbass. He might just take Donbass and not and because why yeah. would he go farther? He's going to destroy every argument he has. That he's made for reasons for invading, he will destroy every single argument if he goes beyond that. Well, and NATO has I, he, he did invade, and NATO did not attack. Uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up 
is that, you know, uh, a lot of Americans are saying, um, uh, well, look, the U.S. went into Afghanistan and there's Palestine, there's Iraq and, you know, uh, we have a yeah. long – yeah, look, let's face it. America has a long history of imperial ugliness. Oh, um, God, yeah. So who are we to say anything to, you know, it's not our business. Let's stay out of it because we have dirty hands ourselves. It's, do you have a response to that? Is that correct? Incorrect? What, what do you say? Uh, militarily, absolutely. I, and I, my own people have argued with me about this, my own family. I believe the United States sh- should not engage militarily. Absolutely. No, not impose a fly, uh, no fly zone, not engage militarily. What about that? That is my yeah. position. One of the questions I have is that Britain sent uh, weapons to Ukraine over uh, actually over NATO objections. Um, Mm -hmm. So talk about a threat from NATO. Actually, it was NATO who tried to stop uh, the UK from sending weapons. Now they're coming in late. Uh, We're going to have a military man on next who's talking about another topic. Stay everyone, stay tuned for that. But one of the things he'd mentioned to me uh, offhand is that look, when Obama put down his yellow his red line in. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess it was a soft pink line in Syria that if if Assad used gas, that would be it. And then Assad crossed the line, according to Doctors Without Borders and Human Rights Watch, et cetera. And Obama didn't do anything. Putin moved in his planes. In um, Afghanistan, we basically surrendered the territory to the Afghan to uh, the Taliban, who certainly were not elected and uh, not a lot of women in those cities were um, went along with that. So by surrendering in Afghanistan and not acting in Syria, do we basically mm-hmm. open the door to say to Putin, there's no price to pay? I don't think we surrendered in Afghanistan. Do you really think we surrendered? <laughs> well, when you give up I mean, the capital city and your troops leave in a rush, yeah, that's a surrender. Listen, well, you can, sh- you can say whether it's a good that. idea. I mean, it's one uh, thing to say it's a good idea. We should have been there, so that's my position. But no, I don't think should so. Should the and Taliban fact, I, be there? I mean, one of the questions, I, I'm going to have listen, a Listen, the Taliban was there anyway. Right. It's not like we made them go away. <laughs> they were there anyway. We... We've been there for 20 years. Do you see like a, a huge shift in uh, anything there? Yeah, there were 100,000 we women in uh, in universities who are ba- banned from school now. I mean, okay, the 100,000 so, women, listen, that's a big I'm a deal. Feminist. Okay, I'm a feminist, but do you really want to continue? Well, it's, uh, uh, and, I, and I, no, I have, a different attitude, I have a different question here. Yeah. Because uh, you're angry at people who say, well... You know, you're not. In fact, I'm reading your report. Okay, so you were. You know, uh, you have are well known for standing up against. As, as I have a long history of standing up against uh, U.S. imperialism from Iraq to Central America, and you've had a long history of writing on this. But you know, in in the end, you say, you know, um, people are. You know, you're not thinking about the people under the bombs in Ukraine. One of the notes I got was uh, out of Kharkiv, where two people uh, in a car put a Ukrainian flag on their car and got. Uh, murdered by yeah. the Russian troops, and we are not thinking about that. Is are you just? You seem to be very shaken by Ukraine, but uh, you don't see this as a problem. If we say okay, but in Afghanistan, that's their problem. Well, no, 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 no. I'm pretty consistent. I always side with people having a right to self determination, having a right to go about. Well, their you're lives. not saying that people chose determined that the uh, Taliban should run their country, are you? No, but I'm not entirely sure anybody chose for America to go in there either. You know, we went, we were supposed to get bin Laden, but 
we ended up staying while Bin Laden. No, I, I agree with that, it. but but you would agree so, that the Afghan people did not choose the Taliban. Uh, did they choose America? Okay, all right. This is going in circles, but I know. I mean, I'm very uh, concerned that 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 you know suddenly we're not concerned about the people of Afghanistan or Syria, and suddenly we're concerned. Should we be concerned about Ukraine? Well, we're not suddenly. You should be concerned about, look, you can be mm-hmm. concerned about human rights violations and try to address those mm-hmm. in any number of ways. But engaging in a total war where civilians are being killed on both sides, uh, uh, you're draining your own economy, all of these things. So, yes, I'm opposed to I'm a, I'm always on the side of the people being exploited, invaded, attacked. So whether that's in Palestine, even though I'm Jewish. I'm very critical of the Israeli government. I'm very critical of what's going on in Yemen, even though most Americans don't even know we're killing people in Yemen. Okay, I'm very critical of these things. And we should also be critical of this situation, especially because unlike the other areas, this can potentially become an entire world war. That's what's really scary about this situation. Well, in in fact, actually, there was a demonstration held by some progressive groups in New York calling, saying, demanding diplomacy, not war. Now, is there a choice here? I mean, what do you think about diplomacy, not war as a a, demonstration? I would love to. Listen, I'm always for diplomacy and not war, but you have to understand the culture. Mm -hmm. It's like telling the Highlanders of Scotland you know what, let's just go ahead and sit down and let, you know, the British decide the terms of how we are going to live. That, you know, they were willing to run off and die at Culloden. Same with Sparta. Same with, there's a mentality here that Westerners do not understand. You know, in the West, people, I've seen people get very upset about masks. I mean, very, where they're screaming, it's liberty and this and that. But we're talking about if you were to apply the mask idea. Mm-hmm. Or there's a mask over your mind. It's it's not just colonization of your land. It's it's a mental colonization where you're denied your own language. You're denied your own culture. I don't speak Ukrainian because when I lived there, the Russians made it illegal for me to speak my own language. So therefore, I never got to learn it. This is why they're fighting. And so I don't see the terms that he set out. I don't see them being willing to give up their freedom. They've already said, and maybe um, I'm hoping Zelensky puts the NATO thing in the Constitution and and Putin says, you know what, let's just stand in front of cameras and say, yay, no NATO together and declare it over. The problem is the culture. I just don't know how you turn off. There's no off button for the kind of pain, anger, and Resentment. I, I don't know how you turn that off. And I don't know, even if Zelensky agrees, if his own people will agree. So, yes, I know uh, that the New York Times viciously attacked him before the invasion, saying he was too weak with Russia, that he was discussing the so, returning to the Minsk Accords. And he was viciously attacked for, for actually trying the diplomatic route. But is there anything that two things? That the U.S. government can do, because we're running to the end of our time, I really want to hear what can the U.S. government do, what, what you think is appropriate, and then also what we as Americans who don't control our government can do. <laughs> two questions. So what, what – you're Joe Biden's best buddy. What are you going to yeah. tell him to do? Uh, OK. I'm going to tell him not to uh, engage militarily. 
Okay, that's the first thing I'm going to tell them to do. Mm-hmm. The second thing I'm going to tell them to do is to engage diplomatically and get both sides together and have a real honest conversation about not negotiating terms because those the terms that Putin set forth are non-negotiable for the Ukrainian people. So he's going to it's going to have to be a very honest conversation. Look, you want to save face and you want to Putin and you want the Ukrainian people to be okay with this. Uh Where can we meet? What is achievable here so we can end this immediately? You know, Um, but this kind of like declaration of you will give me this, this and that. uh, The Ukrainian people are, even if they had agreed before on NATO, Mm -hmm. Doing it now would seem as though they were conceding or they were surrendering. So there has to be a conversation of a very, like, careful way to make it seem as though the Ukrainians won and so did the Russians. I don't know how you do that, but I think if we get people in a room at least to try, that's an option. Okay. In fact, it's the only option. Well, uh, uh, from your lips to Biden's ears, this is Larissa (laughs) Alexandrovna. A uh, Ukrainian American, uh, terrific journalist. Uh, how do we uh, follow your work, Larissa? Uh, I'll, you know what? I haven't really been putting it in any particular place, but follow me on social media, and if something pops up, you'll see it there. Okay, Larissa Alexandrovna. This is Greg Palace with Reality Check. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, we're gonna we'll follow up with you as you get more information out of Ukraine. And uh, in uh, we're going to take a little break here for a few seconds, and then we're going to return. Don't touch that dial, because you're going to hear one of the most interesting cats I have talked to in I don't know how long. At, uh, um, you're going to have a hell of a story from another type of war zone, the democracy war zone in Georgia. This is Greg Palast with Reality Check. This is KPFK 90.7 FM. And this is Greg Ballast, and this is Reality Check on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego, 99.5 Ridgecrest China Lake. And if someone could just write in and tell me where is Ridgecrest China Lake, that's okay. I doubt if it's a surfing lake. Anyway, this is Greg Ballast, and we're about to hear from, we just heard from Larissa uh, Alexandrovna. And we're going to hear now from Major Gamaliel, Warren Turner. Are you there, Mr. Turner? I am here. I am, I am here, Greg. Okay. And did I – I want to get your name right. I'm always getting this wrong. Gamaliel, right? Gamaliel. That's Gamaliel, right. even better. Gamaliel. And I apologize for getting it wrong, but it's such – I want people to get it right. G-A-M-A-L-I-E-L, last name Turner. And uh, what are you doing these days, Mr. Turner, so we get some sense of you're here in California with us. Why? I am in California supporting our military uh, for a future requirements and acquisition. So you are a major for a, a career military, a, a major in the U.S. Army, and now you're an expert on uh, warfare here assigned to um, at Point Magoo. Is that correct? Uh, point one, point yeah, one, right, right around the corner. Right around the corner from uh, Point Magoo. Uh, yeah. The reason we're talking is not to get your advice on war, though. I'm happy to get your thoughts there. But on the the war in Georgia, you're here temporarily, but your residence is in Georgia, and you tried to vote. Can you tell me what happened? Surprisingly, uh, when I submitted my absentee ballot 
for the 2020 elections. No problem with the local uh, elections. No problem with the general election. But ran into a major problem when I went to get ready to vote for president. Ooh, what happened? Now again, I want I want yeah I want people to understand we're talking to um, retired general and uh, military consultant uh, Gamaliel Turner, who is a voter in in Georgia, and uh, he tried to vote in the presidential election as we know, and as as uh, to um, Donald Trump's fury. That election was decided in Georgia and really the presidency by 11,000 votes. And then we had a very close runoff for the control of the U.S. Senate, which the Democrats won by a sliver. And Mr. Turner, I should mention, in case people are talking about having a bit of trouble voting, it's not insignificant that Mr. Turner is African-American. So tell me, where do you live and what was the problem? Let's go back through this. You, you uh, put in for an absentee ballot because the, uh, because the military told you that they need you in California. That's what absentee ballots are for. So what happened? I answered the call. I was presently in Georgia, mm-hmm. my, my home of residence. Mm-hmm. And I was asked to come out to California to help the Navy with some things that they had going on. In the interim, you know, I continued to vote in Georgia up until the presidential election, and that's when I started to have a problem with my absentee ballot. And what happened? You Did you get your absentee ballot? The absentee ballot did not come as it was supposed to. We're, we check a little block that says, once you submit this absentee ballot, you don't have to worry about requesting again, but I request anyway. I follow up. I mm-hmm. call the register. And on this particular case, we're about 10 days out. And I have not received my ballot yet. Ten days out from the election. Is this the, the general or the uh, Senate runoff? This is the general. Okay. And then and what happened? Found out. Uh, I was told, hold on, Mr. Turner. In fact, let us call you back because we have irregularities here. We're not sure what's going on. When I got a call back about an hour later, I was told or informed that I had been challenged along with about 3,000-plus other people in Muskogee County. In just one county. So wait, 3,000 people had their ballot challenged. What does it mean to have your ballot challenged? We live in Los Angeles, you know, which is a democracy. I've never heard of this someone challenge your ballot. Who challenged your ballot, and how can they do that? At the time, I had no idea. Eventually, I found that it was an organization out of Texas who had coordinated with with our register to challenge a certain number of voters. Now, this and was I done by the majority, the majority of those voters were of a particular political organization and are people of color. Well, that's yes. In fact, let me fill in a bit, because while I'm asking the questions, I know a lot about this because I've now been to Georgia every year for nine years investigating what we politely call vote suppression. Georgia, at the beginning of this year, and they'd already had it on their books, passed a law saying that any voter can challenge another voter if they believe that that voter is an illegal voter. Now, it's this is a variant. Remember, everyone's all shaken up about the Texas vigilante law where you can drop a dime and turn in your neighbors for having an abortion. And uh, people are all shaken up about this vigilante law in Texas. Well, in Georgia, they turned it into a vigilante voter law. There is one person 
in Muskogee County who challenged nearly 4,000 people, including Mr. Turner. And uh, almost all the people challenged seemed to be voters of color, or at least the color blue. And it was coordinated by a group called True the Vote out of Texas. Now, I've been hunting down True the Vote, just so you know. This is Greg Palace speaking, and, and while I was working with Rolling Stone and, uh, um, and with Pacifica, we were investigating True the Vote, which is this right-wing group, which is themselves, you know, vote suppression ain't cheap, guys. This you're, The guy who challenged you got this list from True the Vote. Now, how they get the this list of people? They looked at changes of address forms. Well, of course, that's the point of an absentee ballot. When the president of the United States, when your commander-in-chief or as the services ask you to go somewhere, you're going to go. But you still – you don't go to uh, – you know, it's like going to Iraq, lose your vote, mission accomplished. This group not only challenged Mr. Turner and 3,000 some other people in Muskogee County, all together they challenged, you have individual vigilante challengers, 88 of them, 88 challengers, all of them, every one a GOP official, a Republican official, challenging, are you ready, 364,000 voters. 364,000 voters are are, have currently been challenged. What made you different, Mr. Turner, is that you went to court. Explain this. We went to court because my right to vote is important. It is something that others have fought for. It is something that I took pride for. You know, I fought for my country in order to be able to make a judgment in terms of which direction our country goes in. But this systemic need to continue to suppress the vote uh, even in 2022 with the new laws that are being passed now, does not look well for our nation. So you went to actually went to federal court to get your, your vote counted. Is that correct? We went to federal court. We had 10 days to get a, a stay of execution, for lack of better words, mm-hmm. which allowed us to vote. But part of the, the piece uh, of that was they will be allowed, after the ballot guys will be allowed to vote, all they have to do is show proof of residency. And for the most part, that almost meant come in. There was no way, there was not oh, enough yeah. time Wait, left. Just a second. show that proof of residency in five days. You were, you're working for the military here in California. Did, and did you fly back to Georgia to get your vote counted? I was fortunate. I was able to get an absentee ballot, FedEx it back, and was assured that they had received it in time. And you had uh, several lawyers... Several big name lawyers, Mark Elias and others, going to federal court to make sure that you're to overcome this same, block. The, yes, sir. At the same time, I'm waiting to see if my ballot had been received and it was going to be counted. Now, I want people to understand this. For Mr. Turner, an African American voter in Muskogee, Georgia, he had to go to federal court. He had to send in FedExes. He had to stay on the phone. Now, not many people are going to do that. And not many people are even going to call up and find out why didn't their absentee ballot arrive. And understand that the vast majority of African Americans in Georgia voted early or voted absentee. This is not a minor issue. And again, 364,000 voters are currently, currently, this ain't history, my friends, currently facing a challenge by these 88 GOP operatives, 
And now, while your your vote got counted, but uh, I looked at the judge's decision, and all he said is, "Well, in this case, we're going to let Mr. Turner's vote get counted and his uh, and any co-plaintiffs and this group, because they denied you the right to vote." within 90 days of a federal election, but they still have not removed the general right. They did not knock down the general right of these operatives to challenge a third of a million voters, basically voters of color, mostly the color blue. Um, yes. so, and, and Greg, I would, I, I would tell you, you know, from my perspective, we should not have to go through, the collective we should not have to go through all of these changes. That occurred when when people of color finally start to feel comfortable with voting absentee ballot, or voting early, and became a minority of the, the majority, excuse me, of the absentee ballot request and the absentee ballot submissions, then and only then did they start looking at the absentee ballot to as an opportunity to discount our votes, however they could mm-hmm. do that, and, and that puts us back. That puts people of color back in the fear of absentee ballot. But when you're an absentee ballot person that's out of state and not around the corner, it becomes very worrisome and very stressful as to whether or not your request was received, your request was processed, and your request was counted. And, and again, I want to emphasize... You should not have to do that. This is, you should not have to go through that. Imagine the hoops to go through. You know, your suburban white voter walks in. I saw this, by the way, when I was investigating for Democracy Now! in Ohio. Um, I went to Dayton, Ohio, where almost an entirely black electorate was voting, and they had to wait five hours. This is November in Dayton, in freezing cold in a parking lot, five, six hours to vote. I then went to the white suburbs of Toledo, and... There was no line at all. In fact, if you showed up, you got coffee and cookies to vote. And now here we are. Here we are in 2022. Now, I have to say, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your family, because you have to understand, Mr. Turner, who decided he was going to, like, if, you know, bring in federal lawyers, whatever it took to get his vote. This is kind of a history of your family. Tell us about your family in Georgia. Well, I am the second generation of college-educated people. My mother and father were both college educators. Uh, my father was the minister's the sister pastor, the Ralph David Abernathy, during his time frame, and yes. he still is today. My mother was a career teacher, uh, and, and she did her share of, of educating, not only in schoolwork, not only in home economics, but our importance uh, participating in our society, as everybody was focused then, and that that came with the right to vote. We have to remember we just received the right to vote in the sixties, about mid mm-hmm. about sixty four. So being able to vote uh, when I turned eighteen in the seventies was important. Now, I could by the way, in, <laughs> among the other illustrious things that you did when uh, your uh, family when. Uh, uh, that you were also a, uh, a babysitter, or at least uh, watched uh, my good friend Martin Luther King III when he was a kid. Uh, right. So your family was deeply involved in the whole uh, uh, in the entire civil rights movement in yes. Georgia, right? Yes, we, we, we were very fortunate. My father's with David Abernathy's connection uh, on the Republican side of the house with Luke Hendricks. My mother was Jimmy Carter, and a lot of the other local uh, politicians. 
And that was only because the whole community back then was involved. Uh, the fight for civil rights was still fresh but changing. Uh, opportunities were, were starting to happen, and the community was together. Well, this and is a half century. Was, was ready for it. Now, it's 50 years, more than a half century since the Voting Rights Act and since Dr. King's death. And here you are having to fight for your vote. How do you feel about that? How does your family feel about having to fight for your vote 50 years after the Voting Rights Act? It is still an exercise that we go through. Each family member contacting each family member, uh, parents making sure children vote, children making sure their children vote. Uh, and it's not just my family. It's everybody of color. Uh, there are those of us that don't really recognize it. I will say a lot of people born after the 70s are not understanding that this fight is still real. It just has gotten more sophisticated in the tactics that are used. And they're still out there trying to do everything they can to deny folks. Like you said, the long lines of closing down polls in black community, restricting the registers of the people that oversee and touch the votes. All of that is done purposely. For not to ensure that everybody has the right to vote and everybody's vote is counted, but more so to, to make sure they pick and choose who's able to vote, and that that's not constitutional. Well, and it's, it's long overdue, fifty some years later, but the fight is still real. The intent uh, is still real. Let me just let people in on the fact that we are speaking to Mr. Gamaliel Gamaliel Turner. Uh, who is a retired major but a military consultant who was sent here to California and therefore requests an absentee ballot in Georgia. He was challenged by GOP operatives, one of 364,000 people. He went to federal court, but your challenge, the challenge against you, I understand, is still live. By the way, the guy who challenged you, do you know who he is and did he ever contact you? No idea. Okay, well, I looked him up. He's kind of a frankly, kind of a crank <laughs> who does like uh, Civil War, uh, you know, uh, uh, dresses up like a Confederate soldier. And he's challenged you and 3,000 of your neighbors in Muskogee, he, claiming that he personally knows that you are an illegal voter, that you don't live in Georgia. Did he ever speak to you or contact you to find he out? He just I still did property checks. I still play Avalon. And, and I think what people fail to realize, mm -hmm. the absentee ballot is, uh, voting is not just for the presidential elections. When you are a landowner, you have a concern about how your state and, and, and uh, local uh, government controls and manages their money and the laws that they pass that directly affect you. I have no real connection here. Mm -hmm. In California, my life is in Georgia. My investments in life is in Georgia. That's where my care is concerned. And the fight, the fight for civil rights from day one has continued to be in the South. Every vote counts. And just because I'm out, just because I'm in California, do I take my vote away from Georgia? No. It, every vote is needed, as you've indicated. Whether it's 3,000 or 300,000, every vote counts. Obviously it does because they are very interested and making sure that those votes are not counted. Yes. In by fact, uh, you know, there's the infamous call to the Secretary of State by Donald Trump saying, find me 11,000 more votes so we can obviously get elected uh, president. 
But uh, it should also be noted that from our investigations and my reports for Democracy Now!, and this is Greg Pallas speaking to you in for Flashpoints, which you can catch at 5 p.m., my reports, we uncovered that working with Black Voters Matter, uh, we identified 198,000 voters illegally removed from the voter rolls. Let me repeat that, 198,000 voters. This is not statistical ta- sta- uh, sampling. We actually sent to the federal court the names and addresses of 198,000 voters illegally denied the right to vote overwhelmingly, voters of color and young people. And this is not just Georgia. While the worst was in Georgia, we also saw this in Wisconsin and in Michigan, massive purge of the voter rolls. But this is a brand new gimmick by this right-wing group out of uh, Texas. And by the way, like I say, coming up with these lists of these voter hit lists, that's not cheap stuff. And that was backed, for your information, by a group of right-wing billionaires, the Bradley Foundation, the Bradley family of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So you can bet we're going to see this if it works, if this gimmick works in Georgia, knock out, understand, 300,000 votes. Stacey Abrams is running for re-election as governor. I say re-election because she really won in 18. She's running against Brian Kemp, the, the incumbent, who only won by 50,000 purloined votes in 18. So removing 300,000 voters can tip that race. Reverend Senator Warnock is running for re-election, and he only won by a couple hundred thousand votes. It was notable, but you lose 300,000 of your voters and he's out. Now, it's not a matter of whether I'm for Stacey Abrams or whether I'm for Reverend Warnock's re-election. This is an issue of I just feel that the voters ought to choose their governor and senator and not some hit group, right-wing group out of Texas backed by billionaires coming up with phony lists of people to repurge from the voter rolls. And I want to bring this home in one other way. Um, you are old enough, and um, <laughs> you can mention your name or not, but I do have because we've met. Uh, I know that you are old enough to remember the official Jim Crow era before the Voting Rights Act and before the Civil Rights Act. Can you just give people a sense of what it was like in your own lifetime to live under these Jim Crow laws? Essentially, it was fear. Jim Crow was not just about denying an individual the vote. Jim Crow also exercised the power of one race over another race. Uh, back in the day, if you were, let's say, a Fort Valley, a town of 1,500 people, and you went to go vote, everybody that was counting your vote knew you. And if you wanted to keep your job, then you either, if you was going to vote, you voted for who you were told to vote for, and they took it. If not, then you're subject to lose your job. You're subject to have your house burned down. And, oh. and these were, you know, and, and just straight intimidation. These were not on an individual basis. This was on a collective basis for everybody of color. Uh, that's why it was so difficult to get our numbers up to start voting in the first place until we were able to get some level of cushion in between direct harassment and not. But now they've exercised new modern techniques in doing it. It is simple. If I can get the individual not to be able to show up to vote, then I don't have to worry about who he's voted for or managing his ballot once we get it. 
because I could be checked. So the check and balances were there. But they have found a way to get around the check and balances. The best way is to make sure that certain people that ask for a ballot don't even show up to vote. Or when they show up to vote, or deny it, and it's too late. My vote count in 15, 15 days or 30 days after the elections has been decided doesn't, doesn't, that doesn't wash with me. And by the way, I should note, yeah, in fact, the challenge to your ballot was that under this new, well, it's an old Georgia law, but now it's been expanded because uh, they were saying um, it used to be that you could challenge another voter. It was an old Jim Crow law that was created by the governor of the guy running for governor of Georgia many, many decades ago, Governor Talmadge, who handed out to his voters uh, when he was running for governor uh, mimeograph sheets where they could fill in the name of a black person and that black person would be barred from voting they, to challenge them. This is literally a repeat of the old Talmadge Jim Crow mimeograph sheets, except instead of sending, filling in five or six names of black people you want to stop from voting under the Georgia challenge law, I talked to one woman, Pam Reardon is her name, GOP operative. Are you ready for this, Mr. Turner? She personally challenged 30 thousand voters she didn't call one she didn't speak to one but she said they don't live here including one of her black neighbors who lived down the road from her she never called them never asked them just said oh they're not illegal voters and have blocked them from voting or and this is really insidious like you were not told that you were challenged until you're you actually had a call and find out what happened to my ballot people don't know they've been challenged and even worse if you mail get your ballot and mail it in under the Georgia challenge law, they can stop your ballot from being counted. In fact, the lawyers in your case in, in, that were against you said, listen, we're not, we're not taking away Mr. Uh, Turner's right to vote. We're just challenging the right to have his ballot counted. So we're going to pick up your story later and, and tell us how it's going, whether you continue to get challenged, because they're, they're keeping their challenge alive and your court cases are continuing. We've been speaking to uh, Gamaliel Warren Turner, a uh, African-American voter of, in Georgia who was denied his right to vote because the military sent him to California and they try to stop him from getting his absentee ballot. We're going to stay on top of this story. This is Greg Palace sitting in for Kerry Harrison. This has been... Reality Check on KPFK, Los Angeles. See you next Tuesday. Don't touch that dial.